My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Matt Galloway with a special bonus edition of the current podcast today. Last week, I had the chance to talk to Rick Mercer live at Glengold Studio in Toronto. Rick Mercer is, as you may well know, one of the funniest people in the country. And this is a country that is known for very funny people. He was one of the stars of This Hour Has 22 Minutes. Then for 15 seasons, he hosted his own show, The Rick Mercer Report on CBC Television. He has written a hilarious new memoir about his travels across Canada with this show. The book is called The Road Years. Here's my conversation with Rick Mercer. Here he is. Thank you very much. Very kind. How are you, Rick? I'm excellent. Yeah? Yeah, I'm back on the road. I was going to say, do you miss... Part of being on a book tour or having a book out is you get to go on tour and you get to meet people. Did you miss that? Uh, I did miss it, but when I wrapped up the Mercer Report, I didn't really have time to sit around and go, wow, my life has changed so much because I'm no longer traveling nonstop because very quickly the entire country stopped traveling and I was just in the same boat with everyone else. And so that's just the way it was. But yeah, um, with this book, I went out on the road. I went to Vancouver, Victoria, Regina, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, Halifax, St. John's. Ottawa last night. It's, uh, it's great to be back out on, on the road. This is a book about a lot of things, including the show. Um, and it's for people who, who watch the show but maybe don't know the origin of it. What was, what was the brief? When you tried to create the Mercer Report, what were you trying to do? Well, I, my partner, Gerald Luns, and I, we were very fortunate that we got a green light from the CBC to do a show that was called The Untitled Rick Mercer Project. That was pretty much it. And we knew what some of the elements would be. I knew that there would be a rant every week. I knew I'd be talking about politics. I knew there would be a comedy element. We didn't know whether that would be live or taped. But Gerald was emphatic that that the most important element was going to be the road. Mm. The show would live or die, become famous or not, on the road. And I was nervous, and he was like, you'll be fine. You'll talk to people. You'll talk to a stump. You can talk to anyone. Just go out and talk to people. And The second element was we decided we were only going to celebrate. And in comedy, celebration is not your first instinct. When you're a kid and you get a a laugh in grade three, it's not by celebrating the teacher. It's about making fun of the teacher. And a lot of great comedy is about making fun of things or tearing things down. But we just said... With this show, for a half hour every week, no matter where we go in the country, Thunder Bay, Quispampsis, New Brunswick, wherever it is, Iqaluit, we're there to celebrate, we're there to show the people and show why they love living there, and, and we're only positive. And if we don't have anything nice to say, then we're not going. I was going to say, what, what were you looking for when you were on the road? When you were in, those, in big cities, small towns, what was it that you were looking for? Well, common... There's certain similarities. Like, I love the fact that we went to a mountain town in British Columbia that I had never heard of. They had a winter festival where they would do this death-defying homemade bobsled run down 
the middle of Main Street. The fire department would turn on the hoses and turn it into a sheet of ice. People got in coffins and went bobsledding and canoes and all of these things. And it was so far removed from my life growing up. Uh, I didn't grow up in a mountain town in BC where they did these things. But everyone I talked to, I was like, oh, I went to high school with this guy. Oh, I know this woman. I, I know. And and it reminded me of home, which was way on the other side of the country. So that was what I was looking for every week, not only to show off a part of the country, but hopefully make people connect to it as well. And that happens, I mean, small towns are wild, right? You talk about what happens in those little small towns and larger kind of communities as well, where there are those things, where people do these wild events, throwing chainsaws in the air and death-defying kind of road trips and that kind of thing like that. People celebrate why why they are there. Mm. That's what they do. And and for the most part, people are where they want to be. And so if you go to Labrador and they're having the Labrador Winter Games, they're very proud of their Winter Games and their games are different than games in other parts of the country. And yeah, th- of course, they're going to celebrate why... We are here. I mean, my God, do you know how many winter festivals there are in this country? But of course, what kind of country would we be if we didn't celebrate this, 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 this season where of ice and snow? I mean, we have to get out in the wild and do it. You can talk to, I mean, I don't know, you can talk to a stump, but you can talk to everybody, right? You can talk to just about anyone. Um, I don't have many skills, but yeah, being able to talk to people, I think, is one of them. I'm literally the person that if I get on the plane and the seat next to me is empty... I'm like, ooh, I hope someone sits in that seat. <laughs> I hope they're chatty. <laughs> well, this morning, I got up at 2.45 a.m. at the Chateau Laurier. I had an event there last night. I got on a plane, like, so I'm sitting on a plane at, like, 4.30, quarter to 5 in the morning, and I found out that the gentleman next to me was a correctional officer who was uh, on a national... Co- correctional officer committee and and i asked him questions about being a correctional officer all the way to toronto and now it might dawn on me maybe he wasn't that chatty maybe he didn't maybe he didn't want to be interviewed about prisons in canada but he'll go he has a story now to tell rick mercer just kept talking to me though they wouldn't shut up he just talked the whole way a friend of mine, this is a, this, you know, I talk about prime ministers in this book you as do. well, but uh, this is a great story I heard the other day. A friend of mine got on a porter flight from the airport here in Toronto, the island airport, downtown Toronto, uh, to Ottawa. And they got on the flight and they boarded Jean Chrétien. And Jean Chrétien came on the flight and sat in the front row. And then the seat next to him was empty. And uh, so my friend thought, oh, He's a former prime minister. They must keep that seat empty. And then this kid gets on the plane. He's like 18 or 19 wearing a hoodie, and he's getting the seat. And she thought, my God, he mightn't even know who he's sitting next to. But the kid looked at Jean Chrétien and said, hello, Mr. Prime Minister. And so she thought, oh, he... He knows who Kretchen is. And then she said for the entire flight, Kretchen was like, and then Mulroney said to me, and then I said to him, and then, like, and then the Meech Lake Accord. And it was like, it just, he just told stories all the way to Ottawa. What a great story that'll be. When his mother says, how was your flight? <laughs> you said in the book, you say that um, working, because you interviewed a lot of prime ministers uh, and politicians, you say that working with him, that he had kind of the timing uh, and the ability in, in terms of performance of someone like Martin Short, that it's like working with Eugene Levy or Martin Short. Yeah, it wasn't anything I expected. Um, 
we went to shoot with Jean Chrétien the first time I did. And I had this idea because I heard him in an interview one time talk about all the different cabinet positions that he had held in his career. And it was a ridiculous amount. Like he had had them all. And I asked him, I said, do you know what your cabinet positions were in order? And he was like, of course. And so <laughs> I asked him, I said, I'm going to ask you what your experience is. And you start telling me, and I'm just going to start nodding off. And he was, his comic timing was so good. It was not what I expected. Like I say, it was like suddenly being on stage with Martin Short or something. It was, it was bizarre. And he's always been known as a great storyteller and uh, always told funny jokes. Stephen Harper, also funny, but Steve, he was, he was. He Somebody in the audience went, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> you actually heard that. These, these dinners in Ottawa, the press gallery dinners, when, um, and it was politicians would make funny speeches. And Stephen Harper always gave the funniest speech, was always self-deprecating, could do impersonations. But then when he became prime minister, he boycotted it, never went back. And I was told many times that when the speechwriters would bring him a speech, he would read it and he would circle the lines that were funny or interesting. And he would say to his writers, these are, these are really funny and interesting. Uh, take them out now. Because he didn't want to appear as necessarily interesting or funny. What, what's that about? I don't know. I have no idea. But well, it's the what, opposite of Jean Chrétien. But what would have been different, do you think? I mean, part of it, I've interviewed a lot of politicians, as you have, and getting them to speak like human beings sometimes can be tricky because message track is message track. They have a certain thing that they want to deliver. Um, how have you been able to break through that? But also, for people who, who would be watching or who would be listening, what could be different if you saw more of that humanity come out on a regular basis, do you think? Um, it was a kind of a simpler time, even though it wasn't that long ago. I'm not that old. Um, but it was. Um, I kind of moved away from it. Um, Justin Trudeau was never on the show as prime minister. Mm. Uh, by the time he became prime minister, I was still on the show. But I, I just didn't want to have prime ministers on the show anymore because unlike the other prime ministers, he would have done it in a heartbeat maybe once a week if you get away with it. But uh, I just didn't want to, and I didn't want to appear cozy with the liberals at all, so we didn't do it. But um, I always thought it was a good thing. I mean, there was certainly people, when I had Stephen Harper on the show, and he went with this gag that he would kill me with kindness. There were people who didn't like that government who were angry with me for making him seem personable. Hey, you softened him up or something? Yeah, like but I... My argument would be, well, everyone around him says he's fairly personable, so the fact that I somehow managed to glean that out of him, that can't be a bad thing. And so I think a little bit more of that wouldn't be a bad thing. What did you, just the last point on this, what was the place of, of politics in the program, do you think? Well, it was my first love. I only ever had two loves in my life. I mean, subject-wise. Um, you know, <laughs> politics and comedy, and I got to merge them. Uh, I was always a, a political junkie. It, the politics was always there. And I think people liked it. And I think people liked the rants. But I also think sometimes they didn't have to agree with the rants. Uh, what I liked about the show was I felt like we were appealing to a broad spectrum of people. And <clears throat> they, if they didn't like my political point of view during a rant, they could go to the fridge because when they came back, I was going to be in Churchill, Manitoba with the polar bears and everyone loves polar bears. So 
it was uh, the politics were important, but the road was the most important. But you knew what you were doing with those rants too. I mean, in terms of it was anger is my cardio. I mean, you were able to work people up about something that perhaps maybe they wouldn't be paying attention to otherwise, or that they might dismiss, and you were able to find a funny way into getting them to pay attention. Uh, it was a tricky thing. Some weeks it was exactly that. It was something that I heard about that I thought wasn't really getting attention. I remember reading when these kids in, I can't remember, sorry, if it was Calgary or Winnipeg, I think it was Calgary, uh, they were 16 years old and they went and tried to vote yeah. in a municipal election. And uh, they were told no. And then they raised money and sued. And then they uh, lost and then they went to the Supreme Court, where they lost again. And I remember hearing about this going, why isn't this being talked about? And I felt like maybe in newsrooms across the country, people aren't paying attention to these 16-year-olds who went all the way to the Supreme Court. And so that was a great opportunity to rant about something like that, to draw attention to what they were doing. Other times, the rant would be obvious. It would, would be the thing that everyone was talking about that week. We'll be right back with more from Rick Mercer. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. On the road, um, there was a huge appetite, it seemed like, from your team, but also from us who were watching to see you in great peril. To see you <laughs> at the edge of, of death. Yeah. Where did that come from? It came about by accident. Like, I would, I would always go for it. You know, so if I was talking to some people and they were, you know, kayak enthusiasts, I'd say, sure, I'll get in the kayak and try it out. And if it's a professional kayak, you'd fall out of the kayak because it's very hard to maintain balance. But as time went on, we realized people really, really enjoyed seeing me in discomfort. Including people that you worked with, people who were on the team of the program. Oh, yes. They always enjoyed it. And if I, there was a perceived danger, they loved it. So we called it host in peril. The, those segments, the host and peril stuff. So when I got the, the beard of bees. Um, Actual beard made of bees. Yeah, they, they take a queen bee and they, they tape it to your neck, basically. And then they slather, what are they called, pheromones or some sort of pheromone that makes the male bees horny. And then they, and they dump 10,000 bees on a, on a board in front of your face. And then the bees all crawl up on the queen and then you have a lovely beard. And there's paramedics standing by with, like, you know, EpiPens like this. And, uh, yeah, and people would have great enjoyment out of that. Me, not so much. What did the beard of bees feel like? Well, the it... beard of bees still haunts me to this day. <laughs> That's what it felt like. And the sound. I was going to say the sound the is... The sound, yeah. this... Well, for starters, they, they shove cotton balls up your nose. And then they shove cotton balls deep in your ears. And then they say, whatever you do... Don't open your mouth. But you've got cotton balls up your nose. How are you supposed to breathe? So you're, you know, and the bees are on your lips. And the drone through the cotton was quite disconcerting. <laughs> but there was also things like I did the train of death. I was going to say, take us to beautiful, I, I know this community, Varney, Ontario. Varney, Ontario. That was actually a tipping point. That's where I thought we had gone too far. <laughs> because I was taking part in something called 
the train of death. <laughs> and in the middle of the train of death, I really thought I was going to die. Now, quickly, the train of death is three cars chained together. The first car has an engine and no brakes. And then there's like 25, 30 feet of chain. The second car has no engine, no brakes. Then there's 30 feet of chain. Then there's the last car where I was that has no engine but does have brakes. And then the cars drive around a track as fast as they can. And anytime I would tap the brakes, which was my instinct, my car would flip around and slam into the side of the other car and then flip around. And I was getting jostled around and I thought, I'm going to die. I'm literally going to die. And then it dawned on me, I'm going to die doing something called the train of death. <laughs> Which is a comedy death. What is, and you have to explain what a comedy death is. Well, a comedy death is like if you die doing something and you should have known better, it was your own fault. Like people would say, oh, my God, he died. That's terrible. What happened? And they'd say, well, he signed up for something called the train of death. <laughs> it's kind of as advertised. <laughs> I remember watching a news anchor report that the the president of the exotic pet owners of Canada was eaten by his pet lion in his living room. And watching the news anchor try to report this sad news without laughing, and you could hear kind of, well, you could imagine people in the newsroom chuckling over this. That's what you don't want. You don't want the comedy death. Why did you say yes? I mean, do you have any agency in this at all? Or your people would just say... He's going to go, we're going to zap him with a taser. And, and, oh, yes. I had agency. It was my show. I, you know, I, I, so you wanted this? No, I didn't want to. Like the taser thing, they used, it was a joke around the office. People would say, can we taser him? And I would, ha, 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 that'll never happen in a million years. And then one day, Tom Stanley, producer, said, you know, you're going to do this shoot with Ottawa SWAT. You're going to do this repelling. You're going to do this cool thing, that cool thing. And then he said, there's an officer there who would really like to taser you. <laughs> and I said, I'm not being tasered on national television. And Tom said, yeah, I don't blame you because uh, uh, nobody's done it. And I was like, Ugh. I was like, nobody's done it? And they're like, no, no one's done it. And then I just convinced myself and then I did it. And don't ever do it. That was the wrong call. And if anyone ever says stop or you'll be tasered, whatever it is you're doing, just stop. That is my advice to you. You thought you could, you thought they would zap you and you'd be able to stand up for a few minutes or a few seconds. Well, I got, I sometimes convince myself that I'm able to do things that I'm not actually able to do. So I knew that tasering was going to be bad. But there was like, there was this like folktale of one of the young cadets who was tasered stayed on his feet for like six seconds. They're like, he stayed on his feet for six seconds. Like he, he was some sort of superhero. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to beat that guy's record. I am not going down. And I had interviewed George Shavalo, the Canadian boxing legend. And he told me that when he went in the ring with Muhammad Ali and every sports writer in the world said he was going to go down. He just kept telling himself, I'm not going down. I'm not going down. And he told me he knew Muhammad Ali would not knock him down. And of course, he did 12 rounds, wasn't knocked down. So I channeled Shivalo, and I was like, I'm not going down. I'm not going down. And then the taser hit me, and I went down so fast, <laughs> I actually broke the record for going down the fastest. What are you actually afraid of? I mean, you do all these things, bungee jumping, getting zapped with the taser, train of death, beard of bees, it, 
the bob sledding on the in the coffin thing what are you actually afraid of well you, didn't, you weren't in the coffin i wasn't right? in the coffin no, but, but, but yeah. you could have ended up in the coffin at yeah. the end of it if they assigned me the coffin i would have got in it what are you actually afraid of oh i think i'm afraid of a lot of things i'm not this, i'm not this guy I'm not the guy who would do any of those things. It was only because of the show. And I gave it my all. Mm. And I believe that to be respectful to the people you were covering, you should go for it and give it your all. But I would never do- jump out of a plane with soldiers. Never. And I did it twice. Mm. <laughs> Television's a powerful thing. Well, Jan- it's like Jan Arden is this- very much like me. She doesn't want to do any of the things that I made her do. Like, I once went up in the Calgary Tower, yeah. the famous Calgary Tower, with Jan, just, just to have a look. And there were no cameras or anything. And I saw that she put her hand against the wall. And she closed her eyes, and her mouth was moving, almost like she was doing the rosary or something. And I took a mental note that Jan Arden really doesn't like heights. So the next year, when they opened the Edge Walk on the CN Tower... <laughs> And I had an opportunity to do it. I thought, well, it has to be with Jan Arden. <laughs> and I don't know how she got the internal fortitude to do it. Because she knew it was going to be good. It would be great. Yeah. A great story. I almost equated to those stories of women who, like, lift an entire Toyota up in the air because a baby is underneath there. There's some sort of inner strength. When the green light comes on, you do something that you never, ever would have imagined possible. How did you come to walk out of a meeting with the president of Uganda? This is a crazy story. And part of it is about the impact that you've had on Canadians and the work that you've done outside of the show, um, kind of picking up on, 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 on the goodness of, of, of Canadians. Well, what were you doing in Africa? I was in Africa with Belinda Stronach. And we were following this guy, Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, around the continent. We went to a half a dozen countries. And at the time, the United Nations were developing these things called Millennium Villages. And the thinking was you would go into a place where there was literally nothing. And instead of giving them just aid, you would uh, provide uh, uh, fertilizer and, and crops so they could grow their own food and then and make way for a clinic and make sure there's a school there. But the idea was to create a self-sufficient community. And we went and we visited all of these uh, communities, and they were great. They were, by Canadian standards, very rudimentary, but still there were children playing, there was corn growing, there was a small school, there were communities. And then we visited places where there was nothing, and there was a, a level of poverty that I knew, I guess, intellectually existed, but I had never... I wasn't prepared for it. There was, you know, the crops are failing. The men are very sick. There's not a lot of women around and there was no children. And we asked Dr. Sachs, like, how can there be no children here? And he explained to us that that this community, this area, didn't have access to the anti-malaria bed nets. And the previous towns we had been to where the children were playing, like here, uh, they had bed nets. So it was Belinda who said to me... um, I guess when we get back to Canada, we're going to have to uh, figure out a way to buy a lot of bed nets. And so we started this organization called Spread the Net. And for a number of years, we fundraised. And, you know, whatever you think about Belinda Stronach, let me tell you, she can fundraise. That's a Rolodex. Like, you need 50 grand. She goes, I could call Bono, I guess. (laughs) Hang on, I'll text him and see. And so we bought a lot of bed nets over the years. And I never talked about it on the air because... 
uh, it's, you know, it's not a very happy subject, yeah. malaria in Africa. Um, but then one week we decided to run a contest and I challenged high schools across the country to raise money to buy bed nets and 10 bucks buys a net, saves a life. And I said, and we'll come and visit the school that raises the most money. And we really had no expectations. I thought maybe we'd raise five, six grand maybe. And it took off like crazy over 45 high schools, took it very seriously and started raising real money. Uh, I started getting basically hate mail from elementary school students who were saying, why aren't we eligible? And so then we made elementary schools uh, eligible. People did amazing things. People gave like their entire paycheck. Oh my God. Eventually... um, I mean, millions and millions of dollars were raised, and I didn't raise a dime of it, I did, or not, nor did Belinda. This was all students in Canada, and it was always incredible. There were always stories that uh, just made me feel so positive about the future. And yeah, Peterborough, Ontario, you know, the organizer, the student council kid, points at a girl, this quiet girl in the corner, and says, she gave her entire paycheck. And I go over and I talk to her, and I was like, you gave your paycheck? She goes, well, I watched the film on malaria and I thought I was going to buy clothes and I thought they needed more, so I gave them my paycheck. And I was like, how much was your paycheck? She's like, 200 bucks. So where do you work? Red Lobster. And it's like, that's, like, how beautiful is that? And then there was the year of the Fort McMurray wildfires, the same school year where the fire alarm went off. The kids in this high school, they all went out into the parking lot thinking it was a drill, They all got picked up by their parents. The lucky ones got to go to their homes for like an hour and get their belongings. Many of them never saw their homes ever again. They were all displaced, moved across the country. And it was months later, they were back, and the student council there decided they were going to win Spread the Net as a way of thanking the country for all of the support they were given. And so there I was. You could smell the smoke in the air, talking to kids who were still in temporary living conditions, who lost everything, didn't have their Nintendo anymore, couldn't bring anything with them. And there they are, working like Torbay ponies to raise money for bed nets on the other side of the world. It was incredible. What did you learn about who we are as Canadians through something like that? I mean, and I want to ask you more about that, but this is a theme that runs through the book. But in something like that, where you see people do really good work um, outside of their their own communities, what did that tell you about who we are? I mean, I was always looking for similarities, and it's really easy to get bogged down in the differences in the country. And there are vast differences, and that's not a bad thing. You know, there have to be in a country the size of this. You know, there's not a lot in common with, you know, Outport, Newfoundland, and downtown Toronto. And, you know, there's English versus French, and rural versus urban, and it goes on, east versus west, it goes on and on. But there is a, there is a, a sense of generosity that exists, not only in the individual community that you might be visiting. But when, when things go bad, when a hurricane hits a part of Newfoundland, when wildfires hit uh, uh, Fort McMurray and people are displaced, when there's a terrible tragedy in Quebec, uh, Canadians step up, even though what's happening is happening thousands of miles away. Mm. And how many times has there been a situation like the wildfires in Quebec or, or the wildfires in Fort McMurray? And within days, someone is on the news saying, stop sending snowsuits. For God's sakes, we've got enough snowsuits. Because people want to do something and they put their, their, you know, their money where their mouth is and they respond. And that's, 
that's pretty impressive. You say in the book that in some ways this idea of nation building has gone out of fashion. Um, if it came back into fashion, what would that do for us? What would, at, a, at a time when it feels like we're kind of split up, or not kind of, that you have, you have provinces that are threatening to pull out or get out of in, uh, national programs, what have you, what would, what would that idea of nation building, do you think, do for us? Yeah, it's, it's, for me, it's a bit, bit disconcerting, like, obviously. And if you look at, you know, a national organization like the RCMP, obviously there's serious fundamental systematic issues with the RCMP. But at the same time, is the solution one part of the country going, well, we're just getting out. And we'll have our own, our own police force. There will be no such thing as a national police force. There will be no such thing as, yeah, it's nation building. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wish there was more of it. Absolutely. I mean, we're a country, uh, you know, that we're number one in leading the world in reports on why we can or cannot, cannot have high-speed trains. <laughs> why don't we just do it, right? Why don't we just do it and for the good of the country? And... And there's so many instances like that. Yeah. And uh, some, sometimes things might seem like they're broken or they're, they've lost their way, but that doesn't mean we have to destroy these things, including the CBC, right? Personally, and I'm, I never talked about the CBC ever when I was on the CBC because I thought, well, people would just go, well, he's got all the skin in the game. I mean, I have very little skin in the game now with the CBC, and, and I feel it's not the CBC that I fell in love with as someone growing up in a region of Canada that had a vibrant public broadcaster. But I don't think that that's any reason to take it out behind the burn and shoot it. I think the solution is to fix it. Are you looking for, are you looking for a new job? Do you want to be the boss? <laughs> yeah, no. Well, that used to be, as you know, that used to be one of the games at the CBC. Everyone would sit around and go, oh, I'll tell you what I'd be doing if I was running the place. <laughs> and now people are just like, oh, God, thank God I'm not running the place. So, yeah. Did you figure out what it means to be Canadian? You start the book with this and you end the book with this. Um, having traveled I mean, I, coast to coast to coast, and I, I don't know many people who have seen more of the country than you. We went to 500 spots. It's amazing. That's a lot. It's amazing. And uh, it's the greatest privilege of my life because it's fine for me to say, oh, everyone should travel more and get to know your country because it would make for a better country. And that's absolutely true. But the reality is, if you're, you're in any capital city in the, in the country and you're sitting around, you're saying, honey, we should take the kids to, to Halifax this summer and drive around the Maritimes and let's explore that part of the world. The answer will be yes, or we could go to Hawaii for half the price. Yeah. It's a very difficult country to travel around. So the fact that I got to travel around as extensively as I did was a huge privilege. And my tongue was a bit in my cheek when I started the book and the show by saying, I'm going to figure out what it means to be a Canadian because I always kind of pondered that because when I was a kid, when I was like 17, 18, Brian Mulroney actually had a royal commission, the Spicer Commission, that traveled the country asking the question, what does it mean to be a Canadian? And I was 17, 18 years old, and I thought, surely to God, what kind of weird country are we that we have a royal commission asking what it means to be a Canadian? And then, of course, they spent millions of dollars, produced 18 phone books, still didn't come up with an answer. So I thought, when I got this TV show, I'll come up with the answer. And I didn't want to rush it, because I wanted to get three or four years out of the show. <laughs> 
And I kept asking the question, and by the end of the 15 years, I was perhaps more confused than when I went out to a Iqaluit on the very first day mm. of, of shooting. Um, and I never answered the question, what does it mean to be a Canadian? But I realized in hindsight, the only thing I'm sure is I've never, ever wanted to be anything else, but. Nice. What are you going to do now? People miss you on the TV. Uh, and, I mean, you're out traveling around, and, and the book is very, very funny. But what are you going to do now? I like writing the books. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed writing the books. And I love that uh, they're funny. I'm so pleased with that. Writing this book, I thought, I'm not going to include any stories unless they're fun or funny and celebratory of the country because I think we could use a bit of that right now. Um, and I want to keep writing books, but I've run out of runway. There's no more memoir. That's for damn sure. I mean, the book basically ends here in this room with you. There's nothing else to write about. So I have to figure out what that is that I'm going to write about. And, um, you know, I, I, in terms of television, um, every week Jan Arden calls me and says, we should do a show. She's right. So I don't know. I honestly don't know about that, but I like the writing. And it's the polar opposite of having a TV show just going out in the shed and writing all day. That's like the complete opposite, but I enjoy it. We'll look forward to whatever you do next. Rick Mercer, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's Rick Mercer. Thank you. That's the current podcast. I'm Matt Galloway. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.